Revelation chapter number 4 is where we're going to be studying. Let me uh, ask you a question before we jump into the passage. Uh, It's a pretty simple question. I think I know the answer to it, but let me go ahead and ask. Do you believe that the Bible prophesied or promised the first advent of Jesus? If you believe so, would you shout amen? Amen. It did. Some of you seemed a little uncertain about that. It wasn't a trick question. It really did. Over and over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the Bible said he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. The Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. It told us that he would come. It told us where he would be born and the circumstances under which the Savior would come. And yet, did you know that for every single promise in the the Bible about the first coming of Jesus, there are eight promises about his second coming. Did you realize this? For every time the Bible prophesies the first advent of his appearing, eight times the Bible tells us that he will appear again. Last week in Revelation chapter 1, we looked at just one of the many, many promises uh, where the Bible says Jesus is coming again. Let me remind you of it. Chapter 1 and verse number 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And it really is that statement, that declarative, that prophetic, that promising statement in the very first verses of this, of this book which sets the tone for everything that is going to be unfolded to us as we study through it. John began by saying, know this, here's what we're talking about, here's the certain fact, Jesus is coming again. Last week when we were studying chapter number one, I gave to you a three-part outline of the entire book. And you'll remember that our goal here is to uncover revelation, to understand it, by understanding these eight key prophetic events. But we started that last week by saying, what is the general outline of the book or what John is seeking to accomplish? And you'll remember from verse number one of chapter, I'm sorry, verse number 11 of chapter one and verse number 19 of chapter one that there is a three-part outline to the book. So look at those two verses again. Chapter one, verse 11. Uh, He says that he is to write these things that he is seeing. Chapter 1, verse 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the, uh, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book. Same command is given in verse number 19. Write the things which you have seen. So he's commanded, first of all, to tell us what he sees. Secondly, verse 19 tells us that he is to uh, write about the things which are. And then thirdly, verse 19 says he is to write about the things which shall be hereafter or the things which are yet future. What you are seeing in your vision on the Isle of Patmos, what is yet to come, that's future, and then this middle segment or section, the things that are. And this is really where I want us to focus our attention today. What is he uh, speaking of when he says, write about the things that are? Well, I think I said this to you last week, but let me just reaffirm it again today, that in John's day, the things which were contemporary, the things that were current during his time 
and which continue to be current today is the presence and the activity of and the ministry of the church under the lordship of Jesus. John lived in a time when the church was active. And we, 2,000 years later, though we're 2,000 years removed from John, we still live in this time when the church is active. In fact, it's very clear in verses or in chapters number two and three that John is living in and speaking into the active current ministry of seven specific churches. Chapters two and three are, in fact, uh, the, uh, the collection of seven letters which were dictated by Jesus to John, which were then to be sent to seven actual churches which were functioning in that time in Asia Minor. You'll see it in verse number 11 again, chapter 1, verse 11. Write the things which you see uh, in a book and send these things unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And he lists them, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos. I won't read them all. But those seven churches are listed there. Then when you get into chapters 2 and 3, to each of these churches, Jesus says to them, I know your works. To every one of the seven, he says, I know your works. And to five of the seven, all but two, he issues uh, not only an evaluation, he evaluates all of them, but to five of the seven, he issues a rebuke. Beginning in Ephesus, he says, I have something against you. And it goes from there where most of the remaining churches, he issues a stern rebuke. But the point is that in each of these seven churches specifically, and this is true certainly in the church generally, the global church, Jesus is present and he's working and he's empowering and he's evaluating and he's convicting. The point is the churches individual and the church collective belongs to whom? It belongs to Jesus, right? He is the Lord of the church and he's present and active within his church. Now, by the way, there's a lesson here for us. It's not only true of the church in Ephesus and the church in Smyrna and the church in Thyatira and all seven of these churches in chapters two and three, but it's true of the church in Weaverville as well, amen? It's true of the church in Asheville. It's true of the church at Brookstone that Jesus is present with us. We belong to him. He evaluates us. He's watching our lives and our ministries. He's in, in empowering us. He calls us and convicts us and directs us. This church, along with all churches, belongs to him. That's the point. The church is his. He's the Lord of it. So in these seven churches, Jesus is active and present and exercising lordship. And as you think about the seven churches specifically, you also begin to understand that these seven churches in these two chapters are representative of the entirety of the church throughout history. So they're very real and actual churches, but taken together, all seven of them, they represent 
the, the church through the ages. By the way, you know that seven in the Bible is the number of completion, right? It's the number of perfection or the number of completion. Um, as an example, by the way, if you ever notice, seven shows up in the Bible a lot, an awful lot of times, doesn't it? Uh, God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested in God's creation. There is seven. His creation was completed in seven, seven days. Um, God gave man six days to do his work under the law, and then on the seventh day the Jews were commanded to rest. Um, God gave to Israel seven festivals or feasts that would complete their worship. The point is, seven is the number of completion. And so while each of these individual churches needed a word from God, and they are actual churches, as I mentioned, when you put them all together, they represent the church age as a whole. And I want to talk to you for a few minutes about the church and about the church age. I want you to turn to your neighbor on both campuses right now and tell them, welcome to church. Go ahead, tell them, welcome to church. Now, that's a fine thing to say, welcome to church. But even as we say it, I should point out to you that what the way that we just define church by defining it as a place where we attend, we can be welcomed to it, is really not the biblical definition of church. The biblical definition of church, the Greek word is ekklesia, it means those who are called out from the world, those who have been called separate from all else. The church is that assembly of people who have come to follow Jesus Christ and have said goodbye to the world, goodbye to my old life. I'm turning from that life. I'm now looking to Jesus and I am coming to follow Jesus as my Savior. That's the definition of the church. And what's interesting about the word church is that you will find this Greek word ekklesia or the word church in your New Testament 115 times. Only two of those are in the Gospels, both in the Gospel of Matthew. One in Matthew 16 where Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. One in Matthew 18 where he says, within my church, this is the way that you are to function. But beyond those two mentions in Matthew, all 115 or 113 of those mentions are found after Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, what you have is the day of Pentecost where the Spirit of God comes and fills his church for the very first time. And in that moment, Acts chapter 2, you have the birth of the church of Jesus Christ on the earth. Now, if you're listening, I want you to shout amen. Listen. Now watch this. Before Acts chapter 2, God had people in the world. God had a, always had a remnant of people to speak for him in the world. Certainly the nation of Israel were, uh, have been his elect people since Abraham. God's always had a people on the earth. But prior to Acts chapter 2, there was not a spirit-indwelled collective of people who were walking in that spirit empowering within their, uh, the spirit of God dwelling within them. That began on the day of Pentecost at Acts chapter number 2. Okay, So here's what you should know, that the church of Jesus was not progressively created. It didn't spring out of Eden and grow over time. The church of Jesus Christ began like this, in an instant. 
in a moment, when they were in one room, in one place in the upper room, and the Spirit of God descended on them, and in that moment, the church was suddenly, suddenly born. From Acts chapter 2 all the way through the book of Jude, which is the tiny little book right in front of Revelation, you have recorded the ministry and the activity of and the record of the church. But once you get past the book of Jude into Revelation, and specifically once you come to the end of Revelation chapter number 3, the church, which began in Acts 2, is never seen on the earth again. I want to say it again. Acts chapter 2, the church is born in an instant. All the way through the New Testament, you have the record of, the activity of, the ministry of, the mission of, the church, the development of the church. Finally, you come to Revelation chapter 3, the end of chapter number 3, the beginning of chapter 4, and the church is absent from planet earth. You do not see it on planet earth again. And here's the point of all of that. It indicates for us that as surely as the church had a definite beginning, a sudden instantaneous launching on the day of Pentecost, it will have just as certainly an instantaneous and a sudden conclusion on a day that has not yet arrived. And from the day of Pentecost until the day of this event which is to come is what we would call the church age, or some would call it the age of grace. This is what I want to talk to you about today. It is the conclusion of the time or the age of the church. The question for today is how will the church age end? Let's read the passage. We're going to read Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. After this, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Hey, by the way, if you're glad heaven's not a shut-up room, but the door has been opened, would you shout amen? amen? Yeah, well, me too. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Stop. Is that the third division from chapter 1, verse 19, right? The things which you have seen, that's the vision on Patmos. The things which are, that's the church, chapters 2 and 3. He's told now in chapter 4, verse number 1, come up here, and I'm going to show you the things which you are to write, which shall be hereafter. That's the third division from chapter 1 and verse 19. Verse 2, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he that sat on the throne was to look upon like jasper and like a sardine stone. There was a rainbow round about the throne, uh, insider in color like an emerald. And round about the throne were 24 uh, seats or uh, little thrones. And upon these seats, I saw 24 elders sitting. They were clothed in white raiment and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. 
And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like under crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts, the King James says, as living creatures full of eyes before and behind. First living creature was like a lion, and the second like a calf. The third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And these four living creatures each had six wings about him. They were full of eyes. They did not rest day or night. Here was what they were saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are, and they were created. Now, in verse number 1 of Revelation 4, you'll notice that the passage begins, or the chapter begins with these two words, after this. Now, I want you to say this out loud with me. Say these two words after this. Let's say it. After this. All of the things described from here forward in the book of Revelation happen when, say it, after the, excuse my question, after what? What is it that stops so that the rest of what is getting ready to unfold can begin? After this. You may say to someone, in fact, I'm willing to bet some of you have already said it to someone, hey, after this, Let's go get some lunch. If you've said it, you know who you are. Well, here's what you know. As surely as you hope for lunch to arrive, eventually you know you don't get lunch until after this. So lunch has to wait until after church is over, right? And that can be a long time some Sundays, as you know. After this. So when chapter 1, verse 4 says, after this, he's saying after the church age. The church age represented by seven churches in chapters two and three. When the church age comes to a close, then a door will open, chapter four, verse one. A door will open and a command will be heard. John says, I heard this voice saying to me, come up hither, come up here. Now, Last week, we talked about the method of interpreting the Scripture, and we talked about words meaning what they say. The Bible says what it means and means what it says. So when the Bible says that a command was given to John, and and by implication and and by uh, clear inference in the Scripture, we know that it's pointing to a day when the church will hear this command, come up hither. What does it mean? Well, turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 11 very quickly. Look in verse number 12. You'll have another instance where the exact same words are used. Uh, Revelation chapter 11 and verse number 12. Now, we'll get to this chapter in a few weeks. 
But in this instance, it's talking about a time near the end of the tribulation period when the two witnesses that have been preaching the gospel are going to be called up to heaven. But listen to the way it words it, chapter 11, verse 12. And they, the two witnesses, heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. Same command, what happens? And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. All right, go back to chapter 4, verse 1. If in chapter 11, verse 12, the command is come up hither and they ascend to heaven in a cloud, then we can uh, know that the same event will unfold in chapter 4, verse 1. Come up here, and in the same way, John was taken up into heaven. Now, he says in verse number 2, immediately or instantaneously, right away, in an instant, John was taken up. Now, this experience of John on the Isle of Patmos is foreshadowing what will one day happen at the end of the church age. When after this, or at the end of the church age, there will be a door opened in heaven, there will be a command given, the command will be, come up here, And in the same way that chapter 11, verse 12 says that those witnesses were taken up, in the same way that chapter 4, verse 1 says that John was taken up, then in the same way the command will be given to the church and the church will be taken up. And we call this event of the calling upward of the church, we call it the rapture the rapture of the church. Write it down this way. I want you to know that this passage promises that the church will be raptured to heaven in an instant. The church will be raptured to heaven in an instant. Now, I was very uh, intentional a few minutes ago to make sure that you understood that the church is made up, not of those who sit in nice, neat rows on Sunday mornings, But the church is made up of those who have turned from their sin and by faith are following Jesus Christ. Those are the called out ones, the ecclesia, the church. And so he says, one day we too will hear this call. Now, what will that be like when we hear the call to come up here? Well, hold your finger in Revelation and I want you to turn backwards to the book of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, we're going to go to chapter 4. So turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I really do want you to turn because I want you to see some things that you're going to want to mark in this passage. Uh, You have in this chapter a clear description of this event we call the rapture. Um, Now, by the way, this this letter, 1 Thessalonians, is written, or this particular part of it, is written to Christians who have buried saved loved ones. If you've ever been to the graveyard and taken someone that you love and they knew the Lord and you had to say goodbye to them and you buried them, they they were a follower of Jesus and you buried them in the grave, then uh, if you've ever done that, uh, say amen. Amen. I'd I'd say about all of us have. So the grief that we feel and and the loss that we experience and the sadness that is ours in that moment it's the same loss in 1 Thessalonians that these followers of Jesus were feeling. So Paul writes to them in chapter 4 and verse 13. He says, but I would not have you to be ignorant or unlearned, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, or those that have died, so that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if you believe Jesus died and rose again, shout Amen. 
if we believe it, as surely as that happened, as certainly as Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now, if you're going to bring somebody with you, where must they be when you start coming? They must be with you, right? So he is, they, when we bury our loved ones who die in the Lord, their spirit goes to be with him. God will bring with him. But their bodies, we know, go to the grave. Verse 15, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16 tells us what's going to happen at the moment of the event that we call the rapture of the church. A door will open in heaven. Not only will we be called upward, but it says in verse 16, Christ is coming downward. This is what verse 16 says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Now, by the way, this is exactly what the two angels told the, uh, the, uh, the apostles, the disciples, at the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 10, when he's ascending to heaven, and they said, the angels said, why are you standing around? Get to work. The same Jesus is coming back the same way that you've seen him go. Paul says he's going to come in the clouds. He shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Verse 17, or verse 16 goes on to say, and the dead in Christ shall rise. I'm going to do it again. And the dead in Christ shall rise. Amen. They shall rise. Why? Because Christ has risen. And the resurrection body that Jesus lives in, dwells in even today, is the glorified resurrection body that he came out of the grave with 2,000 years ago. When he comes again, we will see the wounds in his hands that were evident even just after his resurrection 2,000 years ago. He's not disembodied, floating around like Casper. It is the Jesus glorified to be sure, but it's the Jesus that walked on the shores of Galilee. He's coming again. And because Christ is risen and been glorified, we shall be risen or raised as well. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain. And you can compare that back up to verse number 15 when he said, we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. So verse 17, we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall be caught up. Everybody say, called up. We shall be called up together with the dead saints who are rising with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort, he says in verse eight, number 18, comfort one another with these words. Now, the word called up in verse number 17, when he says, we shall be called up, the Greek word, as many of you know, I've taught you this for years, is the word harpazo. It means to snatch away or to seize suddenly, to carry away suddenly. Harpazo. 
The word rapture is not in the Bible in English. That's a Rapture is actually a transliteration of a Latin word which was first used in the 4th century to translate from Greek harpazo to Latin and then uh, transliterated into English as the word rapture. The Bible says we will be raptured or we will be caught away. Now there's another place, by the way, where the Bible says this. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, which says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, speed of light. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The Bible promises that the church will be raptured out, the dead in Christ will rise, the living saints will be transformed, and we will be taken to heaven to be with the Lord. Now, if you wonder if this really means that we will be called up, because if you think, of, think this through, I'm literally describing, and I'm, I'm not uh, confused, I'm not, I, I'm not uh, misinterpreting something, I'm literally describing, the Bible says, one day... The Lord will come and millions of saints all around the world, hundreds of millions, pray that it would be even a few billion, Christians will be taken to heaven in an instant. This is going to happen one day. Now, if you wonder exactly what that will be like, all you need to do is go read, don't do it now, but go read Acts chapter 8, verse number 39. Because you have this exact same word used, called away, harpazos, seized away, in Acts 8.39, when Philip was harpuzoed, when he was raptured out of a scene in Acts 8.39, called away and immediately he literally disappeared. And Paul in Titus chapter 2 calls, us, uh, calls this our blessed hope. It is the blessed hope of the church that one day Jesus will come and take us to heaven. In your uh, handbook, why don't you fill in the blanks this way for your prophetic point, and don't ever forget it, in the rapture, the bride of Christ will be called home to heaven in a sudden removal of, living, of all living saints from the earth and the bodily resurrection of those who have died. This is what the Bible teaches about the rapture. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, in, the, in a flash of light, faster than the speed of light, when the day arrives, we will suddenly find ourselves in the presence of the Lord. Now, if this seems fantastical to you, you must not believe your Bible if you don't believe this is possible. Because not only is it told and described repeatedly how this will happen for us, but the Bible says this has happened before. And it's happened multiple times before. Do you remember a man in the Old Testament by the name of Enoch in the book of Genesis who the Bible says God took him to heaven. He didn't die. He just was walking with the Lord one day and one day he was gone. God took him to heaven. Uh, do you remember a man, a prophet by the name of Elijah, who the Bible says was taken to heaven without dying, taken to heaven in a chariot of fire and a whirlwind? Do you remember a man by the name of Jesus? <laughs> Acts chapter 1, verse 10, he was taken up into heaven, uh, literally ascended. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about his own rapture in the spirit, if not in body. Paul said, I... I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body, but i got to tell you what I experienced. I was caught up into the very presence of God in heaven. The point is that over and over and over the Bible says this has happened in the past. Revelation 11 tells us it's going to happen during the tribulation period with two witnesses. And Paul tells us repeatedly in 
John tells us how it will happen, that we will be taken to heaven. So here's how this unfolds. The Lord is coming again. This is the promise of Scripture. And the way that it will unfold is this. Two stages, if I could say it that way, the coming of the Lord will occur in two stages or two phases. First of all, the rapture of the church that I've been describing, he will come to the clouds, we will be called up. Then there will begin a seven-year period of tribulation on the earth. We'll talk about that uh, beginning next Sunday. A seven-year period of tribulation that will unfold upon the earth. And at the end of that tribulation of seven years, then the second phase, if you will, of the return of Jesus will be what we call the revelation. That will be when Christ comes to the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. Rapture, tribulation, revelation. That's the unfolding of it. Rapture, tribulation, revelation or return. Now, by the way, I, I should acknowledge that, um, that there are godly uh, people who have differing views on how these things will unfold and the timing of certain events than what I hold and what our church position is. I recognize that. And there are all sorts of different uh, interpretations eschatologically of how uh, these uh, end time things will unfold. And so I will acknowledge that we must be humble as we, as we interpret these scriptures. Um, but I want to give you today some reasons why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. There are some people who believe the rapture will happen midway through the tribulation. It's called pre-wrath. Um, there's some people who believe in a post-tribulation rapture. Uh, there's some people who don't believe in a rapture at all, just that one day Jesus will come again. A lot of things we could get into about different, differing opinions and views. But why do we, why do I, and why do we as a church hold to a pre-tribulation uh, rapture view? I'm going to give you four reasons real quickly. you got to write fast, all right? Number one, we believe in a pre-trib rapture because of the scriptural promises of a pre-trib rapture. The scriptural promises. One thing about that I would say is that there are far too many descriptions of the coming of the Lord in the New Testament which cannot be reconciled into one event. They're too different. They're clearly describing two separate Events. As an example, what we've just been reading about is the coming of Christ when he comes to the clouds. But the Bible says that when Jesus comes again for the second time, he's coming to the earth. That he's coming to stand upon the Mount of Olives. That he will literally, his feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives again. So the Bible describes different appearances, different um, descriptions of how the Lord will return. And they cannot be describing the same event. Now, another reason that we believe in a pre-trib rapture is because of the scriptural promises. Go back to Revelation if you're not there already. Look at chapter 3 of Revelation and verse number 10. Speaking to the church in Philadelphia, which, um, which I believe represents the end times church, the true church within Christendom in the last days. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 10, Jesus says... To that church, because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the earth to try them that dwell upon the earth. He's talking about the, the uh, tribulation. And he says to that, to that final true church, I'm going to keep you from that time. Then there's another reason, and we won't take the time to turn it. You can go and read it later, but it's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. 
And in 2 Thessalonians 2, essentially what Paul describes is that, is that the, the Antichrist, the beast, which by the way, next Sunday I'm going to be preaching about the rise of the Antichrist. But the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians that this Antichrist cannot come. It even indicates that he would like to, that he's trying to come forth now, that Satan wants to step onto the scene now, but he can't because there is a restrainer. There is something or someone preventing him from coming. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, the restrainer must be removed. And when the restrainer is moved, then the Antichrist will come forth like a flood. What alone could restrain the very appearance of Satan incarnate. I would suggest it is the, the Holy Spirit of God within the world which indwells his church. And so this would refer to the removal of the church, the salt and light, and the removal of the Holy Spirit uh, restraining him. And if the Holy, listen, listen, if the Holy Spirit's leaving, I'm going with him. Amen? All right, so scriptural promises calls us to believe in a pre-trib rapture. Number two, the character of God. The tribulation is all about the wrath of God being poured out upon the world, the breaking of the kingdoms of this world, and the preparation of Israel to receive Christ as their Messiah. And it is not within the character of God to judge the righteous with the wicked. He doesn't do it. If you wonder about that, Genesis 6 tells you about the flood and how that he lifted up Noah and his family, took them out in the ark, the ark of safety, took him out before the flood came and judged the world. Christ is my ark of safety. And he takes us out. Lot, righteous Lot in Sodom was removed before the fire of God's wrath fell. It's not the character of God to judge the righteous with the wicked. Number three, the most persuasive argument in my mind is the absence or the location, I should say, of the church in the text of Revelation. So I mentioned the church is seen in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Chapter 4, verse 1, the church goes out. Chapter 4 and 5 are heaven, scenes in heaven. Chapter 6 begins the tribulation period. And the tribulation goes from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 18. And nowhere in those chapters do you find the church on planet earth. Every time you see the church from Revelation 6 to Revelation 18, she's in heaven every single time. Why do we believe in a pre-trib rapture? Because before the rapture, before the tribulation begins in chapter 6, God has already taken the church out. And then the fourth reason is what we would call the doctrine of eminence. That is simply to say that the return of the Lord is imminent. It could happen at any moment. It is the next event on God's calendar. And that must be the rapture. It cannot be the revelation. I can say boldly on the authority of God's word, Jesus cannot come back as described in Revelation 19 in the, in the second coming, the revelation. He cannot come back as described in that chapter today. He cannot. Because there are things prophesied in Revelation and in the book of Daniel and in the book of Ezekiel which must happen before that event can happen. And if something must happen before something else can happen, that something else cannot be imminent. It is a defile or a defiance of the definition of imminence to say, well, this will happen and then that will happen. That's not imminent. This is imminent then. And I'm telling you that the coming of the Lord, the rapture of the church is imminent. It could happen right now because nothing must. Wouldn't it be okay if that just happened right now too? Amen. Amen. Nothing must happen before the Lord comes in the rapture of the church. 
In fact, in your focus factor, since I've been saying these things emphatically, why don't you jot it down? This will help you understand in your handbook. The focus factor is this. The rapture then will conclude the church age and will mark the beginning of seven years of tribulation on the earth. It will conclude the church age. After this, a door was opened in heaven and we were taken out. It begins seven years of tribulation, chapter 6 of Revelation and verse 1. And then the church is not seen on the earth again until Revelation 19 when we come back with Jesus. Now, go back to Revelation chapter 4 and let's uh, hasten to wrap up in the time we have remaining. So Christ is coming to rapture his church before the beginning of the tribulation. So let's talk about the church in heaven. Uh, Back to Revelation chapter number 4. You'll notice that the Bible says in verse number 2 that John was taken up into heaven. And he says, the first thing he says about uh, what he saw when he got to heaven is, Behold, a throne. Now, have you ever said, when I get to heaven, every golfer has said this, when I get to heaven, I'm going to play a perfect 18 holes. I'm going to score an 18. (laughs) Every drive will be a hole in one. Every fisherman says, when I get to heaven, I'm going to spend eternity by the river of life. Every, Every fish I catch will be a trophy. John said, when I got to heaven, I saw and all I cared about and all that consumed my attention and all that I was focused on, I didn't care about golf, I didn't care about fish, I saw the throne of Almighty God. Take it up in heaven, whoa, behold the throne of God. He says, I was was, uh, there in the focal point, the centerpiece, what all of heaven was focused on. All heavenly activity, all celebration in heaven was focused on the throne of God. And by the way, the Trinity is present here at the throne. Chapter 4, verses 2, 3, and 5, you have God, God the Father, seated upon his throne. He that sat upon the throne, verse 3 says, was to look upon like Jasper and Sardana, glimmering, uh, like a glimmering gemstone, just reflecting light. There was a rainbow around the throne. Verse 5, the throne, out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. You have this glorious presence of God. Then in chapter 4 and verse 5, you have the Spirit of God. There are seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, there's only one Spirit of God, but this would be the sevenfold nature or character of the Spirit of God. You can read about that in Isaiah 11, verse 2. And then you have the Son of God as well in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God. So you have the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all present in heaven. And all of heaven is enthralled with the glory and might of this triune God. But who else is in heaven? As he describes this heavenly scene in chapters 4 and 5, not only does he see God but you'll notice that there are these living creatures, what the King James calls beasts. Uh, You'll find these beginning in chapter 4 and verse number 8, or verse uh, 7, I should say. Verse 6, actually. (laughs) There were four beasts uh, full of eyes before and behind. They're described with these different faces, and they have these eyes. They can see every direction, and they have these six wings. These are... These are also described in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. These are seraphim. And their cry is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. These are, these are specific and specialized angels who were created for one purpose. And that one purpose was declare, to declare the holiness of Almighty God. Now, by the way, let me just stop and say very quickly on this point that 
the cry of the seraphim is not love, love, love. I've mentioned that to you before. It's not grace, grace, grace. It's holy, holy, holy. Because if God were not three times holy, then his grace and love would be no big deal. But the fact that he is so perfectly holy and righteous means the fact that we can be ushered into his presence is speaking itself of the grace and the love of God. And if you want to be like heaven, if you want your life to reflect the song of heaven, sing loudly about grace, but never minimize the holiness of God. Sing loudly of his holiness. Pray for holiness in your own life. Walk in holiness in your life. Don't say, I'm a believer and I can live any way I want to. I do anything I want to because I'm under grace. You say, my God is holy. I want my life to be holy. My God is holy. I want my marriage to be holy. My God is holy. I want my church to be holy. Thank God when we're not, he's full of grace. But he calls us to holiness because that's who he is. They cry, holy, holy, holy. And so these are the four living creatures, the seraphim. Then if you go to chapter 5, verse number 11, you will find that there are other angels. These are your standard run-of-the-meal angels, if there's any such thing. <laughs> now, the Bible, the reason I say they're standard run-of-the-meal is because there's, there's only four seraphim. I mean, you know, supply and demand. If there's only four, they've got to be so much more valuable. Well, there's a bunch of these other angels. Look at what the Bible says, verse 11 of chapter 5. I beheld and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the number of those angels was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. They're innumerable. So who's in heaven? The Trinity's in heaven. The seraphim are in heaven. An innumerable host of angels are in heaven. And the raptured church is in heaven. And how do we know the raptured church is in heaven? Well, we saw them go up in chapter 4, but they're described in chapters 4 and 5. Look at verse number 4. And around the throne I saw 24 little thrones or seats, and upon those seats I saw 24 elders sitting. That's the church. These elders represent the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ in heaven. Now, how do we know that? Am I just making that up or... Did I just read that in a commentary somewhere? How do we know that these 24 elders represent the church? Uh, and you might say, well, why are they not just called the church? Because in the, the function of the church is within the world. We're the body of Christ, called out of the world to now go forth with his gospel in the world. But once we get to heaven, we are pictured as these 24 elders. How do we know that these elders are the church? Number one, by their attire, what they wear. They are clothed in white raiment. Now, the Bible says in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, that the white raiment worn by these elders is the righteousness of the saints. That's how I know that's the church, because they're wearing righteousness, the righteousness that we have been given by Christ. How do we know, secondly, that this 24 elders of the church, because of their song, Look at chapter 5, verse number 8. Revelation 5, 8. When he had taken the book, the, 24, or the four beasts and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each of the elders had seven or, or had uh, uh, harps and uh, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they, the 24 elders, sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why are you worthy? What are the, what, what are the elders singing? For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. That's the church. 
It's the elders singing in heaven, you have redeemed us by your blood. We've come here from all over the world through the blood of Jesus. And then thirdly, we know that this is the church because of the function of the elders, what they're called to do. Chapter 5 and verse number 10 says, you have redeemed us and you have made us kings and priests unto our God and we shall reign with thee on the earth. This is the function of the church that he says in Luke that we are to reign with him. In chapter 4 and verse number uh, uh, 4 and 5 and 6, he describes these elders who are wearing crowns that we will reign with him. Who's in heaven when we go there? When chapter 4 and 5 describes this incredible scene of worship, it is the, the, the trinity and the seraphim and the angels and the church raptured to heaven. Third and final thing as I close is that you should understand that those that are raptured to heaven, the church, have a title, have a designation that we have been given. It is that the church is the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. I believe that it is this relationship that Christ shares with his church. Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. It is that relationship more than anything that explains why it is that he will come for us before the tribulation begins. Because the tribulation is all about wrath and judgment upon the kingdoms of this world. It is all about ultimately bringing, Christ, bringing Israel to faith in Christ. But the church, the bride of Christ, will be delivered from such judgment. Now, you should understand that if you want to go to heaven in the rapture and attendant to that, if you want to miss the seven years tribulation that will unfold on this earth one day and we'll begin talking about it next week, if you want to miss it, then you have to be part of Christ's bride. John chapter 14, verse 1, don't turn, we don't have time, but John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus, speaking to his church in marriage language, said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I am going to prepare a place for you. And when it is finished, I will come again and get you and take you home to be with me. It's marriage language. It's the, it's, the, it's the picture of a Middle Eastern wedding where a girl is betrothed to a groom. There's an agreement. They're engaged. They're going to be married, but she can't, they, they can't be married until the home place is ready. And he goes to his father's house always, and he builds a room, an apartment, a third level, whatever, at his father's house. And he works and works and prepares and prayers, prepares until it's done. And when it's done, he goes to get his bride, but the bride never knows when that day will occur. She must be ready at all times. Because all she knows is she's got a promise. She's got a ring on her finger and a promise in her heart that she belongs. She's been betrothed. He loved her and called her to himself. She belongs to him. And one day, all will be ready and he will come for her. That's all she has is a promise. And one day, he will come. And Jesus said, when it's ready, I'm coming for you. Now, I have a ring it's not a ring on my finger, but it is the Holy Spirit of God, the sure guarantee that he loves me, the guarantee that he's coming for me. And when all is ready in heaven, Christ will come and take us home to be with him. But you've got to be in his bride. You've got to be part of his bride. 
The operative word in that promise I just made to you from John 14, 1 is this. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. That's the key. You can believe in God all day long. You can go to church every day of your life and miss the rapture, live through the tribulation, and die and go to hell. But if you will believe in Jesus Christ, the groom, the bridegroom, the Savior, put your faith in him, then he will come for you one day. And by the way, I've performed a lot of weddings over the years. I've never seen a bride come down the aisle to meet her husband at the altar wearing torn blue jeans, dirty sneakers, her hair all disheveled, and she didn't brush her teeth. It's never happened. Because every bride I've ever watched come down an aisle had prepared. She was wearing her wedding gown. Her hair was beautifully arrayed. She, she was looking as beautiful as she could look because she knew she wasn't just going anywhere. She was going to her wedding. And how many of us are guilty of thinking, well, I'm saved. I can live any way I want to. And, and, and we're we just going to saunter up to the marriage supper of the Lamb, all dirty and unholy and ungodly and careless about our faith. No, if you know Jesus and you know he's coming, you should get up every day and go, God, I want to be pure for you today because today could be the day. I want to purify myself. And in fact, the Bible says that every one of us who has this hope purifies himself. That's what we do. We get ready for him to come. Here's my next step. I hope you'll take it. Knowing that Jesus could call us home at any moment, I should purify myself. I want to be ready. And I should reach as many as possible with the gospel along the way. Let me close us and invite you to receive Christ as your Savior. Can I just tell you, some of you are sitting here today, both here and at Merriman Avenue, and the reason you're here today is because somebody in, in our church has invited you to come. And they've invited you because they love you. Here's the thing. They love their church, but they love you more than they love their church. They, they, didn't, they didn't just say, hey, come see my church. They invited you to come because they love you. And they want you to know the Jesus that they know. And they're praying right now for you. And they're praying that you're going to give your heart to Christ. And I'm going to give you a chance to do it. To believe in Christ in the same way you believe in God. To believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. That he's the Savior and that you can't save yourself. And one day he'll come for his bride and you want to be part of that bride. They're praying you're going to do that. And I want to tell you, whether you do that today or not, that person that invited you, they are ready and willing and anxious and eager to talk to you about this. And so when church ends, they, they're going to want to know, what would you decide? Tell me what you're thinking. Not what you think about the church. Did you like the people? Was the music good? It's not really that important. They're going to want to know, what do you think about the fact of who Jesus is and the fact that he's coming again and are you ready? And so I hope you'll have that conversation with them. But before you leave, why don't you give your heart to Christ? Let me pray for us.